Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with my friend Poppy Crum. She's the head scientist at Dolby Laboratories and also a consulting professor at Stanford University. She recently gave a keynote presentation at Strata San Jose on data-driven sensory intelligence, and I'll make sure to put a link to that presentation in the post that accompanies this podcast. Welcome to the Data Show, Poppy. Nice to be here, Ben. So first off, I think uh, uh, let's uh, give the uh, listeners a little bit about your background, talk a little bit about your background. So you started out as a uh, having a degree in violin performance from two universities, University of Iowa and McGill University, and then ended up getting a PhD in neuroscience and psychoacoustics. So how did you go from violin to neuroscience and psychoacoustics? So as a violinist, uh, one thing that uh, I realized, so I have absolute pitch. And um, for anyone that is, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with the term perfect pitch. Um, it, there's no perfect about it. It is a different way of experiencing the environment. Uh, I started playing violin when I was about three, and uh, it was a primary part of my life. Um, at some point, I realized I had absolute pitch uh, when I was about 11. And um, all it means is that when I experience sound, uh, I can't help but assign note names to it. I, I can't. I can hear a refrigerator, and it sounds like a, a, a B flat. And I hear notes. I listen to music, and I can, you know, transcribe a jazz solo. But it, it's it doesn't mean that it's it's perfectly accurate. Um, how you know, for me, my absolute pitch is actually you know an A is equal to 440 hertz. If you go to a different time era, Baroque music A was equal to 415 hertz. It's something that changes. It's uh, it's a it's a different processing uh, capability than uh, say uh, someone that has relative pitch. But it's it's not really a, a perfect. Uh, it's not a, it's. it's it has a lot to do with social con. What we assign A to B has a lot to do with social context and and uh, the time period. Nonetheless, um, because of this, I was very interested in neuroscience uh, as a musician to uh, better understand some of the you know how my brain worked differently. And I also always worked as an audio engineer when I was a musician making records, and uh, was very interested in uh, spectral processing and um, what the differences between. Uh, what was actually there, what the stimulus was, and how I experienced it. Uh, much of my background has been in uh, understanding the auditory physiological pathways, um, but really where I developed and I think where I sit right now is, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking, thinking about, you know, image processing and visual pathways and how we experience the world and form sort of holistic sensory objects and integrate information uh, when, we, when we're in a complex environment about what we see, what we hear, what we feel. And, and how that information is constantly interacting uh, to form our holistic experience of the world. So, by the way, uh, what is the field of psychoacoustics? Psychoacoustics is, um, so it's one approach of, well, first, it really treats the brain as a black box and is trying to come up with um, quantitative models of how we go from the stimulus that exists and changes in that stimulus to ultimate, the ultimate perceptual experience and what a user experiences. And, and critical to understanding that is that the rela that relationship is a nonlinear relationship. It's not one-to-one. -one. So, so, really so people who work in this field have uh, used some of the techniques that people in machine learning use? Uh, absolutely. 
So now, then uh, fast forward to today, you now head up a group at Dolby. Um, so maybe it'll be good to uh, give the listeners a background, a little bit of uh, what, Dol- what Dolby does in general and what your group does in particular. Great. So I think you know, part of what Dolby is today, uh, a lot of people think of Dolby as an, an audio company and uh, core to you know, the development that my, or the role of my team, I would say, is, is recognizing that Dolby is actually at the intersection of sensory experience. And, you know, a lot of our most uh, relevant uh, new technologies are currently happening in image, develop, image processing and development with high dynamic range capabilities. But we have a lot of development going on in imaging and voice in, and in audio, um, you know, I come from a background in systems neuroscience. I've spent my time studying single cells and, and treating the brain as a computational circuit uh, to ultimately get to the end goal of perception. There's a, a really good intersection for thinking about computational neuroscience and technology uh, when you are a systems neuro- neuroscientist or with a company like Dolby, where you know the, the ultimate technology needs to be developed holistically with thought to multi-sensory malleable user needs and experiences. Um, I think uh, my team at Dolby has come from, you know, a strong background in computational neuroscience. Uh, I've got team members that, you know, contributed core algorithms to brain computer interfaces that are currently driving computational, driving um, uh, limbs for amputees. I've got neurosciences, uh, neuroscientists with backgrounds in neurogenesis and, you know, by definitely in olfaction, imaging, yeah, vision, to, uh, the physiological vis- visual pathway, and 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 haptics. Really, it's you know an approach to thinking about this holistic experience um, of the future. So, uh, based on the things you've described, I imagine uh, you care about and pay attention to uh, these emerging new interfaces. Uh, for example, virtual reality. Um, so. Uh, do you yourself and your group? Do you guys uh, work work in uh, VR? Uh, I'd I'd say that we definitely are very interested in those spaces. Um, you know, we we are interested in virtual reality and um, augmented reality. Both of those uh, critical success is dependent on an understanding of you know this multi sensory world. Um, I'd say more so for AR than VR, uh, but. But both absolutely have to think about the holistic physiological and sensory perceptual system. AR being, you know, augmentation to uh, overlay to reality, where VR really you have an encapsulated virtual world. You know, I'd say the AR problem is 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 more difficult uh, to solve in in that way. But uh, the you know, ultimate success is going to have to incorporate a lot about perceptual science. So it seems like there's a lot of uh, excitement around some of the new products. Uh, in particular, Oculus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, I look at it, it still seems like uh, a bit clunky because you have to wear uh, th- these uh, goggles, right? So, but already people are uh, uh, using it for gaming and a variety of other things. So what do you think about this new, uh, this more recent entrance into VR? Because uh, from what I understand, probably VR, I mean, it's been around for a while, right? I mean, so, but uh, it seems like there's been breakthroughs in computation just in the last year or two? There's no question there's been breakthroughs in computation. There, you know, nonetheless, it's still, there, there still isn't a, a clear path for consumer integration or where it's going to reach everyone. Um, you know, 
key areas where VR is, is being integrated are, you know, gaming and, and, and porn is where you actually see these technological um, capabilities showing up. But for the general consumer, VR crossover isn't there yet. Nonetheless, what, what has been developed are a lot of opportunities for developers to contribute that are readily available. And you're seeing leaps and bounds um, happen and involvement in that way. So, so uh, if you're going to use it for gaming, then I can imagine for certain jobs, you can use it for training. Sure. Education, I think, is a key key area. Um, you know, if you think about medicine and some of the training that say, say I'm a, a pediatric heart surgeon, I, you know, the odds that I have actually done surgery on the size of heart that I first encounter in, in my first surgery, my first, you know, true surgery is, is really low. So, you know, here's this opportunity to really, to train an entirely different set of um, capabilities that are relevant where the past has not provided that opportunity. Um, you know, you, you're, you're a pediatric surgeon, you, you, you're not an adult. You know, when you're working on adults, there are, the standards are very different. When you're working in a space where the exemplars, you know, don't always exist prior to the needs of the, the individual, these are great opportunities. So, I mean, I, I don't know the exact time scale, but I imagine at some point these interfaces might even start appearing in offices, right? So, for example, I worked in finance a while back and uh, just interacting with people on a trading floor. They usually have like, I don't know, in the order of three or four, maybe even five monitors that they're looking at to look at di different markets and, and different financial instruments. But mm -hmm. maybe in the future, uh, this will be a, an interface where people can navigate uh, data like that. What do you think? I think that's that's true. I think there are situations, I mean, th there definitely is a situation where people don't want to remove themselves from the environment that they're in. So that's something that you deal with. And, you know, you have this, you know, where uh, an AR experience, you you have the real world or the, you know, the normal world you're used to interacting with, um, you know, also with you, but imagine you're in a virtual experience where I think there's a lot of power there is, you know, say I'm on a trading desk, I have my four or five screens, I have my environment that I've built. Um, I'm, I can take that with me. I can be anywhere and still have the same efficiency and complexity that I want to work with. Um, and, and it can, you know, it, I'm not tethered to one place. It doesn't mean I want that when I'm actually at my desk, but it does mean that if I'm not at my desk, I'm going to be much more efficient than I would be otherwise. Um, and I, th I think that capability is, is will be embraced. So already, even with the, the interfaces we have now, like phones and tablets, people are already saying that uh, this is changing the way uh, uh, the, the brains of kids, right? So, I mean, I can imagine these uh, uh, VR interfaces are also going to have uh, uh, an impact like that, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there there's good and bad things that can happen uh, with that. Uh, you know, you have this powerful environment that you can harness uh, towards uh, improved training in certain areas or creating an immersive environment that people want to take part in. But you also do have to worry about in uh, VR environments, there there are definitely issues with uh, integration between the visual and vestibular uh, system that people, you know, don't feel good. And those things, I think, have to be improved as for you know, long-term usage of children and and adults in general. But so, um, in terms of uh, just uh, let's uh, 
tip a little bit and talk a little bit about neuroscience and computing because I know you you uh, mm-hmm. you have a strong interest in that. Uh, so for most people, when they think of uh, the intersection of neuroscience and computing, uh, they think about deep learning. But in reality, deep learning doesn't really have anything to do with how the brain works. And some engineers, some uh, computer scientists think that, uh, well, that's fine because uh, we want systems that produce good results, we don't necessarily need to mimic how the brain works. So, but what's your take on all of these things? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously at Dolby and in general, you know, where I, I, I think there, there's so many opportunities for computational neuroscience and technology to meet. I, I really, um, I, I, I like to think that, you know, the Computer scientists, engineers, and uh, mathematicians need to be in a three-legged race with the psychologists, cognitive scientists, and uh, computational neuroscientists. You know, uh, to get to where we need to get to for the ultimate user experience, we, you know, one can't. Three-legged race are part of the same team. <laughs> a three... <laughs> so a three-legged race, you've got to be part of the same team <laughs> with yeah. each other. They're part of the same yeah. team. There, that's what I mean. They, yeah. they, they are, they are tied together, right, right. and uh, can't lead the other they have to be be paying attention to each other there um but i know there have been some interesting comments from some key uh machine learning uh individuals you know saying we shouldn't be building trying to build the brain uh, really and that's not what we should be trying to emulate and uh you know there there's some truth to that for sure uh when you know where so Today, we're getting to this point where we think about sensory perception. The technologies of the future can't be about just imaging or what we see. They have to think about this fluid, closed feedback loop of how the user interacts with the environment, interacts with the device, interacts with their experience, how their experience is modulated, and and an understanding of the fact that their perceptual system is driven driven by uh, context and you know, their priors and their, you know, contextual pressure that is, you know, placed on them and that that completely modifies the ultimate output. So in that way, I sort of feel like, okay, you know, the goal in technology shouldn't be to build algorithms that mimic neural function. Rather, it's understand neural function. We have to, we absolutely have to compositionally for insight. You know, the brain is basically, in many cases, a Rube Goldberg machine. You know, we've got this limited set of evolutionary building blocks that, you know, we have to use, we have to, we are able to use to get this to sort of a very complex end state. And, you know, we need to be able to extract when that's relevant and integrate relevant neural processing strategies when, when it's applicable. But we also want to be able to identify that there are opportunities to be more efficient and more relevant. You know, the, the, it's kind of like, t- I think of it as table manners. You know, it's like you have to uh, know all the rules before you can break them. You know, and, and that's the, the big difference between being really cool or being a complete heathen. And uh, the same thing kind of exists in this, this area. Um, how we get to the end state, we may be able to compromise, but we need to, you know, we absolutely need to be thinking about what, uh, what matters in neural function for perception. And from my world, where we can't compromise is on the output. And I, I really feel like we need a lot more work in this area, which is we, uh, we absolutely need to understand perceptually what information the neural systems weight, emphasize, and obscure, in many cases, perceptually to have an accurate model and what we're trying to get to. So if you think about, okay, you know... So basically what you're saying is that because uh, in many of these systems, the consumer is uh, human, you, yes. need, you need to know... You need to know how they're going to interact with the output. 
will interact with the output, but it's not even uh, cognitively. I, I don't need to necessarily know that. I'm not talking about user experience. I'm talking about how their system, the physiological system, handles the output. So, you know, we experience the world in a state of illusion many in many ways. And, you know, we don't, you know, again, it goes back to psychophysics. What we experience is not the truth of the stimulus that or the what's actually there. It's it's a constant, malleable uh, interaction between, you know, context and weighting of different sensory information because, you know, an object, whether it's, you know, a phone I'm holding or it's a dog barking or an individual I'm talking to, they have a, you know, produce an image on the back of my retina that's being translated through my brain and producing a sound that's being you know, processed by my bowser, you know, through my cochlea and ultimately um, undergoing many different transformations um, and, you know, a smell and potentially a touch and all that information has to be integrated to my holistic representation of that individual. Um, and the for that individual, there are so many different features that get combined. You know, there's a location of where they were. There's, you know, how wide they were. There's how loud they were there. And when when I experience them as talking to me or when I experience them as uh, performing some act. And those are, each one of those is, you know, has a, is a feature that exists in one modality, in more than one modality and, ha you know, information has to be combined in a weighted algorithm to be able to be acted upon. You know, our brain is really good at getting rid of information to allow us to have actionable uh, states in the world that are robust. Um, I, I, I think you gave some really simple but clear examples of this at your keynote at Strata. Sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think you know, an example that it, maybe people are all uh, familiar with is if you think about ventriloquism. That's a the, you know, ventriloquism isn't just um, about it, it has it's not about the dummy doll. Forget the little dummy doll on the side. But if you think about that example, um, when someone you, you know it's, it, ventriloquism is an is an illusion that happens when uh, our brain misassigns the location of of the auditory information in its formation of an object. So if you, you know, imagine the ventriloquist speaking and he's got the, you know, the little doll talking, moving its mouth, sorry, not talking, <laughs> uh, and people experience it as coming from the doll. That, you know, that happens because you've got this situation where your visual system is producing an image on your retina for the location of the doll. But the auditory system, in terms of the location of the sound that's being produced, actually has more variability. It's, it's less accurate in this particular situation than the visual system is. And so the information for location of where the sound is coming from is, you know, is um, not weighted as strongly as, you know, this co-modulated uh, visual image on your retina that and so your system misassigns the location and you experience an illusion well the reality is that happens all the time in life we live in a state of ventriloquism our, our auditory systems constantly you know in competition in many cases with you know our visual system and such with regards to location dependent on what kind of echoic information is is exists and so our brain is constantly doing these sort of uh, having a malleable weighted, weighted algorithm to try to give us information that's going to allow us to be more efficient if instead knowing that the information is inaccurate that we receive but we have to be able to actually identify identify an object and, and act on it. We know need to know where the our crying baby is. We need to be able to get away from the tiger. We we need it's it's not good for us to be able to hear all the 
error in our system and hear everything. Instead, we need to get to an end action. And that's, that's really what's critical. And I think the same is going to be true for technology. So, so Poppy, for, what about for the people who build, I guess, bots, I guess would be the term, right? So systems that interact, bots that interact with other bots. Are there still some ideas that they need to take away from uh, the things you've been discussing? I mean, because in that case, basically it's machine to machine, <laughs> you know? So at that point, it's basically they, they don't need to uh, factor in a lot of the things you've, you've described, right? Or, or do they? Do they still do? So I, I think there's definite truth to that, um, you know, the, the human system has capacity limitations in each, you know, in what we, how much visual information we can process or how much auditory information we can process. And, you know, in the case of uh, if we want a system to interact efficiently and behave like a human system, the last thing you want to do is take all the information you can and throw it into uh, one one modality or, you know, make it all visual sensory uh, processing um, because it, the system can't handle that. That's like akin to asking someone to, you know, to, to trying to recreate a pathological condition that, that, that we know people don't work well in. And so, you you know, what you want to do is is understand how these systems interact and how they, they interact, you know, how they are um, malleable together. But now if I'm a bot, uh, you know, it, it's a different problem. And, you know, the capacity limitations aren't there, but you may not be taking advantage of uh, the intuitive um, problem solving that you want to get to, that you can with, if you're trying to mimic a human system in that way. So one of the things that uh, you've uh, expressed to me in, in the past, in uh, our conversations, is that in certain situations, uh, mm -hmm. more data is not better. So can you elaborate uh, more on that? Uh, sure. I mean, I think that it's it's similar to what I just said a little bit because you know if I um you know there, I think there's a trend right now in wearable technologies in and in some of you know if we think about augmented uh, systems, augmented reality uh, systems, to uh, there's a lot of hype and and uh, push to give people as much information as as can be captured and to somehow. Uh, try to um, capture all the data that's possible and let the human system deal with that information. Um, the reality is, is that more data is not better in these situations. You know, given that what our brain, you know, how efficient I am in the world is highly dependent on how well my brain knows what to get rid of and what to emphasize. And it's that complex interaction that is elegant and lets me be successful in you know as a human so this is um, more what you're saying is this is more than just a an interface problem where you know uh, an efficient interface can can allow me to uh, process and navigate lots of data absolutely i mean the fact you know so interface is is already suggesting that i'm focused on uh, uh, well like we can have interfaces that aren't visual but it does somewhat imply that i'm already on a visual in a visual world and and you know that's com in many cases, to me, that's completely the wrong angle to take. Instead, it's I've got this physiological system that takes in, you know, that processes information from multiple senses. I call them modalities, if you have it, uh, you know, and takes in this information and um, integrates it. Uh, how efficient I am at doing that is so dependent on my ability to sort of 
distribute across my sensory capacity, my sensory modalities to handle and process information and act on it simultaneously, what I see, what I hear. And, um, you know, that's something that definitely has to change in the future for us to be successful with uh, wearable technologies. There has to be a seamless integration of uh, multiple sensory inputs. Um, for how we interact uh, with with new devices and new technologies. So let's close by talking a little bit about your uh, role as an educator. You you teach a class at Stanford, uh, and maybe you can uh, you can describe to our listeners what your class is about. Sure. I'm a neurophysiologist by training, but uh, the class I, I teach at Stanford, I, I created this class. It's called uh, Neuroplasticity in Musical Gaming. It's really uh, more about video gaming uh, and uh, neuroscience uh, with the idea that uh, video games offer a very in, uh, intense, immersive environment to actually modify behavior, modify training, uh, use training to modify behavior and potentially modify neural circuits. Anytime you really have behavioral changes in any way, there's an underlying neural change at some level. It may be short-term, it may be long-term plasticity, but something has modified. Um, We, you know, the class has, you know, really uh, emphasized uh, new controllers and, and virtual reality environments because, you know, Controllers like Leap Motion, Oculus Rift, or VR environments like Oculus Rift offer um, a, a new level of capability in terms of the embodied experience and natural gestures. Um, I have students that develop games for rehabilitation or target certain conditions such as autism. I have uh, athletes that develop for retake reaction time training. I have musicians that develop for learning to sing, learning to dance. And to clarify, uh, many of the students are non-programmers. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, I have some strong, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have computer science uh, graduate students, but I also have a lot of students that come in with very minimal uh, or next to none, no programming background uh, in the so course. Is there, we, is there a correlation between programming skills and uh, resulting project? The quality of the resulting project? That's a great question. There's definite yes and no. So I would say no in the sense that there are some of the most creative projects come from this, you know, some of the students that come with that come with less program, you know, come with uh, little to no skill in programming at the beginning. I mean, you have to understand the course does require they program, they, yeah. they have to become proficient in MATLAB to yeah. uh, be able to build a basic synthesizer. They have to uh, program in Unity. Um, they go through a lot of tutorials and get to a point where they're, they're fairly proficient in Unity, at least to build a basic game, uh, even if they've come in with no background. But, uh, you know, a few things happen. I've got student... The class is about uh, working together, so often we pair stronger programmers with uh, students that have less background in programming, but everyone has to sort of pull their own weight. Um, the types of projects that you end up with can range. You know, to have a successful and powerful game doesn't necessarily require um, really require the most uh, sophisticated programming skills. I'd say you know they have to get, be able to enact their ideas, and sometimes the students that came with less background put a lot more thought into the intricacies of their games and are very successful in that way. Um, but I've also seen students in a period of time that came in with stronger skills do some amazing um, development in a very short period of time. Uh, in that that that's exciting. So, so do any of the uh, have you had students from Stanford end up interning with you at Dolby? Absolutely. Um, I think I've had uh, at this point we've had maybe six or seven interns come from my course. Uh, I uh, as a final project for my course I hold an arcade. I invite a lot of industry members, and uh, we usually have about two hundred people come through. And, and my last arcade 
people got internships, people got jobs. It's it was it was very successful in that way. So cool. Well, this has been great. Thank you for spending time with us, and we look forward to hearing more about what you're doing in the future. Pleasure to be here, Ben. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through Stitcher or iTunes or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.